All right, we're coming to part two of Extra Genesis, and this study is just complementing some things that at times we question, and uh, we're in Genesis chapter one tonight, so if you have a Bible, you're going to be in Genesis one, and there's going to be one cross-reference if you want to put your thumb over in Proverbs chapter eight, and then we're going to uh, take a look and try to understand what writer was trying to get at when he recorded uh, the book of Genesis, and um, we'll uh, look at a few things, and th this is a topic I think that generates a lot of speculation, and so I want us to kind of figure out uh, what the different viewpoints are, and then kind of come back to the text and see what is there and what's not there. So as we get started tonight, I mentioned that there's a lot of questions from the very beginning of when Genesis was compiled. Uh, a lot of times we think of the creation account in the book of Genesis as kind of a modern debate, um, kind of like the biblical text versus science. But if you look at uh, history and you kind of look at the research that has been done way back, I think one of the things that you'll see is that uh, the Genesis account and then the two creation stories that are at the beginning of Genesis is not really a new conversation at all. There's been a lot of debate um, even before the time of Jesus on what this account is trying to say. And uh, some of these early biblical interpreters um, began to flourish really right after the Babylonian exile. And then debate continued all the way to the time of Jesus. And sometimes there was some uh, tensions uh, that were felt in the text. And we're going to have a video, a short little video that will kind of uh, illustrate some of the tensions that are in the text. We might notice them, but we might not as we read the text, because I think a lot of times we have been given like glasses that we wear when we read the text. And sometimes we don't see some of the things that's definitely there. So um, a lot of times people think that this debate about what Genesis is saying and what it's not saying kind of arose with a lot of the German scholars um, back in the 1930s or so forth, all the way up to our modern day. But um, even these tensions were found among some of the Jewish readers. And some of these ancient commentators that you find were quite acute and their attention to detail is actually quite amazing when you see what they have noticed. And when you look at it, when I look at it, sometimes I it's there. It's right there in black and white. I just never saw it. I just could, I never noticed it before. So I guess we have a long track record is what I'm saying on the questions that Genesis uh, brings to the surface and uh, maybe seeing how early scholars, Jewish scholars, and even wow. German scholars, uh, uh, how they handled it is important for us to kind of understand a little bit as well. So the first observation I make is that Genesis requires explanation, especially in the creation account, because it takes a lot to understand what the text is saying and what it's not saying. 
And I think the approach of many of the ancient interpreters model for us how to read it closely and carefully and not to make assumptions of what the uh, reader understood when they read it um, long before our time. So um, that's just some introductory thoughts into Genesis chapter one. And along the way, you might have some questions or comments, just, I mean, break in and ask them because this is a fascinating section of scripture. And in many ways it's foundational uh, to not only the Old Testament, but on into the New Testament as well. So do you have any thoughts on uh, this first slide that I'm showing you? So here's some approaches uh, down through the corridors of history on how people have read Genesis 1 and 2 and how they've interpreted it. And probably for most of us who have lived in the uh, 20th and 21st century, really have been only introduced to kind of one approach to Genesis 1 and 2. And that's the top one here on the slide where we have been trained to kind of look at Genesis in a way that God spoke and it all came into being out of nothing. And I think that is kind of the uh, interpretation that has been most often proposed, uh, especially in evangelical Christianity. And you'll notice I put here that um, it's almost as if God made a cosmic uh, ball of uh, Play-Doh and God begins to fashion it. And it's done in six 24-hour days. Now, when science developed uh, a lot of its uh, data on the age of the universe, obviously that came into conflict with a lot of people that believed in six 24-hour days and they um, are individuals that really kind of think that the earth is really only 10 to 15,000 years old, while the scientific community is saying, well, the universe is billions of years old. So you can see this, the big gap that is between these two approaches. Um, you'll notice there's a picture that I put here. This comes from the mid 13th century, ironically enough. It's a painting that's entitled God the Geometer. And uh, you see a compass that is being used. And the idea behind it is um, the complexity of the universe in which we live uh, seems to be something that took a long period of time with a lot of engineering involved to make it all work. And yes, God does have the power to do whatever he wants, but maybe what's going on in the Genesis text is something that's not as simplistic as he speaks and poof, it's there. So when, you, when we read Genesis chapter one, uh, there seems to be something that is already in place even before the creation account as we see here. And um, I don't think the story uh, probably would have been interpreted that way by the initial hearers of Genesis chapter one. But that seems to be the one that a lot of times Christianity is held on to because I think it's the simplest to think that God uh, didn't take a long period of time to bring the creation to order. Um, obviously, it's able to skirt around some of the evolution uh, issues that arise and so forth. So 
people that had struggled with this interpretation then began to modify it a little bit. And um, the way they did that is they began to lengthen the 24-hour days to long period of times or long era of time. So in other words, God created in six days, uh, but the day is not really a 24-hour cycle. It is a long period of time, perhaps um, perhaps millions of years old, as well as a way of reckoning the data that has been discovered in the scientific community. But the third one that has arisen has been more recent in terms of what has been discovered uh, by archaeology. And um, scholars began to notice with uh, things that have been discovered out of Babylon and other ancient Near Eastern uh, countries that they had their creation stories as well. And ironically, they are very close to the account that is in Genesis. So you'll notice point number three there, that with the help of archaeologists, similarities between the Genesis and the mythic, uh, mythic stories from Israel's ancient neighbors um, are found not only in the creation account, but also in the account of Noah and the flood as well. Um, scholars call these stories legends uh, because it helps communicate their viewpoint of the world. Remember last week, we talked a little bit about mythology being a way a particular culture or people look at the world and how they interpret it. Um, do, does not really say that everything that they're saying is false. Certainly many, uh, much of it, it can be historical, but it's the way they form it. It's the way they interpret it. It's the way they see how everything works. And um, so the question becomes, how does this information that there are other creation accounts help us in, in interpreting the Genesis account that we find? So we're going to look at that in just a second here, but let me See if you have some thoughts on this particular slide here. So let's look at Genesis chapter one, verses one and two. So we're beginning uh, here with the very first verses of the Bible. And it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So straight away into the first two verses, we're trying to figure out what is going on. Um, you'll notice here on this slide, despite, despite the words in the beginning, it already feels as if we're walking into the middle of something from the very start of verse one, because mm -hmm. It says there was something there, even before God speaks, something was formless and empty. There's darkness over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God is hovering over the waters. Um, so the first observation that most scholars notice is that we're not really beginning with nothing. We're beginning with something. And what that is, we can't define at this point but there's this mysterious element to it. Um, here, it describes the waters. And if you look down again in verse six of this chapter, it says, uh, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate the water from the water. So water comes up again. What is this water? Um, what role is it playing in 
the beginning before God begins to create. And um, then, you know, what is this separation that's taking place, water from the water? And I'm going to show you a graphic that's also in your handout uh, that uh, will will explain that, I think, a little bit, because it's the way they viewed the world. It's the way they understood how the world was organized. So that's the best advice we can take, is that Gen Genesis is an ancient story that is written to a group of people that had a particular way of looking at the universe. And um, it's the way they interpreted not only what was around them, but it was the way of them understanding the process uh, that brought the universe into existence. So I mentioned that we're gonna look at Proverbs chapter eight for a moment. If you wanna turn there at this time, we're going to see that um, there seems to be something in the beginning uh, that's described as wisdom. So it says here, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And ancient interpreters began to ask the question, well, what is it that's in the beginning that's already there? Um, the world uh, as we know it seems to be arranged by something. So in Proverbs chapter eight, this uh, whole chapter is talking about wisdom as a personification uh, of something that is needed to live life uh, with skill and excellence. However, what comes into the text is where this wisdom comes from. So wisdom is kind of seen as crying aloud and calling to people to follow. But if you come down to verse 22, um, it's as if wisdom is speaking. And you'll notice the quotation mark, 22, it says, the Lord brought me forth as the first of his works. Before his deeds of old, I was appointed from eternity, from the beginning, before the world began. When there were no oceans, I was given birth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the earth or its fields or any of the dust of the world, I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above a thick curling, the foundations of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so the waters would not overlap his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was the craftsman at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. So what you have here is wisdom is already in place. Whatever that is, this personification of wisdom is pre-creation as we know it from Genesis chapter one. So wisdom somehow plays a role into the overall created order. And it's even before what is accounted for in Genesis chapter one, as you go down through the six days. So um, this might have some connection to John 1, 1, where it says, yeah. in the beginning, there's that same 
start as we see in Genesis 1.1. John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Of course, in John's gospel, the word is related to Jesus, uh, that he was in the beginning and he was the creative force that brought the universe into existence. Colossians says that as well. Um, but uh, I think what's important here is there's something before there is something. And, um, and it's described as wisdom in the book of Proverbs. Some of the ancient Israelites, uh, as well as other ancient cultures, personified this concept of wisdom. And you'll note at the bottom of the slide there, Philo of Alexandria. He lived 20 BC to AD 50. So he's uh, a little bit of a contemporary of Jesus. He writes this, and who is to be considered the daughter of God, but wisdom? Who is the firstborn mother of all things? So uh, Philo of Alexandria also made an interesting comment that when it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the beginning was one of wisdom's names. That's the way he interpreted it. So in the beginning, in the wisdom of God, God created um, everything that we see. So already we're kind of into the deep, aren't we? So in Genesis 1, 1 and 2, it doesn't take long before we see that there's something rather than nothing. And what is this something? And then Proverbs 8 says that wisdom was before creation. And so you have ancient uh, interpreters, really, that um, uh, begin to think this way and wrestle with it uh, long before the evolutionary debate uh, in the 20th and 21st century. You have it being debated about down through the centuries. So let me stop there. Do you have some questions or comments on any of that? Well, I was going to say that in Proverbs, that definitely sounded like Jesus to me, even uh -huh. before you got there. I was thinking, <laughs> thinking that. So, uh -huh. okay. I, and I'm not quite sure I understand that last point um, from Philo that he, he thinks that wisdom is considered the daughter of God. Uh huh. You know, that's verbiage that is being used among ancient people. Um, and um, you would call Jesus the son of God. You know, perhaps he was thinking wisdom is the daughter of God. I don't know what he's thinking. I'm just, all I'm doing by quoting him is saying these, these, um, these ancient people are already wrestling with the text long okay. before, long before science. Okay. That's all I'm saying. So, other thoughts or comments? So, the way the the way the text reads in Genesis one one and two is interesting. These parallel stories about creation uh, that you have in the ancient Near East. They all start with something. None of them really start with nothing. And uh, I think that's kind of implied here in Genesis 1, 1 and 2. The ancient storyteller is telling us in these words here 
that uh, the earth was formless and empty. Uh, some uh, translations say formless and void. But the phrase that is used as formless void is uh, uh, tohu bohu, which makes up two Hebrew words, tohu meaning formless, bohu meaning empty. And so the NIV says, that's the way they translate it. It says, now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was hovering. So in the ancient mind, um, God is not creating out of nothing. And one of the ways that this term formless and empty is translated in other uh, translations is it's chaotic. So if it's not, uh, it doesn't have any form and it's not filled, if it's formless and it's empty, it's the idea of chaos that is kind of present and ruling over whatever is already there. And um, God begins to calm that chaos. And as he calms it, he then fills it. So on Sunday mornings, we looked at this particular, because I mentioned it in passing, that the way that Genesis 1 reads is days one through three, God is creating space. In days four through six, God is filling that space with something. So day one, he separates the light from the dark, but day four, he's going to fill that with the sun, the moon, and the stars. Day two, he separates the water from above and below, and then he, later, he fills that with sea creatures and birds, and then day three, he moves the oceans to create space on dry land, and then on day six, he fills that land with animals and human beings as well. So it's this idea of God creating space and then filling space. And if you remember the video that I put together as an illustration, I use the game of Monopoly. I don't know if you remember that video clip that I put together where God, uh, God arranges everything, sort of like setting up the Monopoly board so then all the pieces can be put in place so that it can then be played. So that is on uh, YouTube if you want to go back and review that. Um, so space and then filling the space seems to be the rhythm here in Genesis chapter one. So when we begin to talk with individuals that talk about literal 24-hour days, you start to see that, how is that even possible? The sun and moon and stars that we use to measure time is not even created until day four, if you're trying to think linear, um, it's one day after the other. Rather, it seems as though there's something here that needs to be organized and rearranged to carry out God's purpose. And um, in so doing, this chaotic, formless, and void, whatever that is, uh, is being um, put, into, uh, put into its proper place. It's being organized, and now God moves ahead in creating the things that we see around us. So any comments on the, this slide or the previous one uh, that we were just talking about? So if this particular account is not giving to us a scientific description of creation, what is it trying to do? I think 
probably a good way of understanding Genesis 1 is it's elevating Yahweh, the creator God that Israel worshiped, to be seen as better than the many gods that the other ancient Near Eastern um, uh, people groups worship. So you see here the first main, main point. Genesis 1 has a Babylonian feel to it. And Genesis is shaped largely by Israel's trauma as they're in exile in Babylon. But the Babylonians were big on astrology. The sun, moon, and stars were considered gods. And heavenly bodies were thought to tell the future uh, for those that were skilled enough to be able to read them. So for the Israelites, it, it becomes apparent that they don't worship many gods, or at least that is the movement of the Old Testament. You will find in the Old Testament, that's a struggle for them. Um, and uh, they finally get to that place, but not without a lot of backstepping into idolatry. And, and those type of stories are found all, the, all through the Old Testament. But for the Israelites, the heavenly bodies are not seen as gods. They are seen as something that helps uh, create the signs and seasons that we live in. So take a look at verse 14 uh, of chapter one here. It says, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. Now, I want you to notice that one phrase there. What it, what's the purpose of it? Uh, to mark seasons and days and years. So the sun, moon, and stars are not uh, gods that are to be worshiped. They are to help us in the rhythm of living life out on earth in the cycle of 24-hour days and 365 days uh, uh, a year. So um, you can see that in a sense, the sun, moon, and stars are agents of God they're not gods. And in particular, uh, as the Old Testament unfolds, um, the cycle of the year also marks their liturgical year as well. You know, all the various feasts and so forth uh, that mark uh, Judaism. And uh, so what we find is already kind of an apologetic here against the other creation stories that are already um you know, in circulation during the times of the ancient Near East. So that's why I put point number two, Genesis 1 is a slap in the face to the Babylonians. Uh, compared to what the Babylonians and other people groups thought about the ancient world, uh, Israel's God knocked those gods down to size. And it seems to be a theme that is found all through the Old Testament. God is constantly showing that he is stronger than the other gods. And that's found in Exodus. When you think about the 10 plagues, um, that each plague is kind of an attack on a particular Egyptian god. So Genesis 1 is almost kind of like an apologetic for uh, the one true God. And um, his name is Yahweh, which will be revealed later. However, there's a mixture of names in the book of Genesis uh, Elohim is also a, a name that is used for this one God as well. So um, in particular, this, this text might be a knock on the Babylonian account 
that is called Enuma Elish. Enuma Elish is a Babylonian uh, account of creation that predates Genesis uh, by a, a number of years. Now, the oral tradition that was passed down by the time Genesis is written was already in circulation among the Israelites. However, uh, Enuma Elish predates a lot of those oral traditions. So in some way, Genesis 1 is correcting the misconceptions uh, of uh, not our day, but of their day and of the peoples that they often had to uh, contend with, um, some of them that brought great harm upon them, the Babylonians, Assyrians, and the Egyptians in particular. Any thoughts there? So let's talk about Enuma Elish just for a second, because I think it will give to us a great appreciation of what Genesis 1 is really doing. So in the middle of the 19th century, archaeologists were digging uh, in the library of a king by the name of Ashurbanipal, who lived uh, 668 to 627 BC in the ancient city of Nineveh, which is part of the Assyrian Empire. And they found actually thousands of clay tablets can, that contain various types of laws and administrative matters and different types of literature. But one of the texts that they found was very, very similar to Genesis chapter one. And Enuma Elish though is rather a story about uh, the dysfunctional God family that was uh, fighting um, and this power struggle was taking place at the dawn of time. And the heart of the story really, it, it's a long, in fact, there's numerous scrolls. So it's actually a legend that is much lengthier than Genesis chapter one. I mean, Genesis chapter one is like a thumbnail compared to Enuma Elish. But the heart of it is basically this. The main God was a God by the name of Marduk that kills one of his nemesis by the name of Tiamat. He fillets her body in half. And with one half of it, he makes the sky. And with the other half, he creates the earth. Um, so Marduk is this ult ultimate high God of the pantheon that was worshiped among the Babylonians. Uh, scholars found though, that there were similarities between Enuma Elish and Genesis chapter one. And the real central difference between the two, even though they had a lot of similarities, was that uh, Israel's uh, God creates without all of this division and fighting and melodrama that you find in the Enuma Elish uh, uh, legend. But, Archaeologists began to say, oh, this is going to help us understand how to read Genesis chapter one because of the similarities between the two. So here are the similarities. Here's a chart. I think that's in your handout, although it's a little bit small like, uh, to see. Um, so there's commonalities and there's differences. So look at the top here, uh, a commonality. Matter exists independently of the divine spirit or God. Genesis does not describe creation out of nothing, but the establishment of order out of chaos. Those two things are similar 
between these two accounts. Another thing that is similar is darkness precedes creation. We see that right here in verse one and two, that there's some type of darkness. We can't define what it is at this point, but that's also mentioned in both accounts. Now here's where there's a division and a difference. So in the Enuma Elish account, chaos is, um, is the goddess Tiamat that eventually gets killed and flay in two. However, chaos in the Hebrew is a term uh, tehom, which means the deep. And you see here in uh, chapter one, verse two, that darkness was over the surface of the deep. Now, what's interesting, do you notice the, the word uh, tehom? It's a word that is very closely related to the name Tiamat in the original language. So there's some commonality, but there's some difference there. Then there's this commonality. Light exists before the creation of the sun and the moon and the stars. Both Enuma Elish and Genesis 1 say the same thing. Now there's a difference. In Enuma Elish, Marduk, the high god, fillets the body of slain Tiamat using half of it to form the barrier to keep the waters from escaping. However, in Genesis, the difference is found here when it talks about um, how there is a barrier uh, that is not a slain goddess, but is a firmament uh, that is holding the water in place. So um, when you look at this, um, you, you can see down in verse six, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate the waters. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse or the firmament, some uh, translations uh, uh, translate it, from the water above. You're going to understand this in a second when I show you the picture of how they understood the world, but um, that's a difference. Now, the last observation, commonality between the two. The sequence of the days of creation are very similar, including the creation of the firmament, the dry land, the luminaries in the sky, and then humanity. And then they both describe a time of rest after this creation process has taken place. So when archaeologists found this, they're going, oh my goodness, there's, this is so similar that maybe what the writer of Genesis is doing is trying to correct the Enuma Elish account uh, by describing creation of, of the one true God and uh, then talking about some of these other things in difference to Marduk and Tiamat and that type of thing. Okay, so that's kind of, that's kind of heavy and might be confusing um, let me see if I can answer any questions that might come to mind. Is there anything? Okay, yeah, I'm pretty confused. Okay. Um, if you uh, presume a heavy Babylonian influence, then you're probably thinking that Genesis wasn't really written by Moses in the 1500 BC, but was written by those people returning to Israel from uh, Babylon in 500 BC. That's exactly Am right. I right. That's exactly right. Yes. Okay. 
So oh, I'm not as confused as I thought I was. No, you're okay. you hit it right on the head, Brenda. Um, for but what we have been told within this one interpretive framework all of our lives is Moses wrote the whole Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He might have framed a number of things there. Now, this gets really complex, uh, but most scholars see that there is things, and we mentioned this last week a little bit, that seems to have more of a later date commentary in what seems to be an early book. Uh, so you might have oral traditions that began by Moses, but the final form has been edited much, much later. And uh, you see that with the differences of names that are used uh, in Genesis. You see that uh, in the fact that uh, we said last week, in Genesis when uh, it talks about uh, the Canaanites used to live in the land at that time. Well, the, the Canaanites, if Genesis is old, all the way back to Moses, even before the Exodus and Joshua's entrance into uh, the promised land and driving out the Canaanites, um, you, would, you would have to say, well, they used to live in the land, but they don't now. That seems to be what the editor is trying to say. And um, so you look at all these small little things that the average reader probably, you know, you wouldn't even notice. But scholars, because that's what they do for a living, they concentrate on the text and they go, hmm, there's some inconsistencies here. This looks as though um, different sources have been brought, brought together. And in a moment, when we watch this uh, short video, the difference even between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 on the account of creation uh, raises the question that these are two different sources that are being used uh, to describe the creation account. So you hit it right on the head, Brenda. You're not confused. Uh, it is, um, it, if this has strong Babylonian apologetic and influence on it, it's a much later book than if we think that Moses wrote it um, during the course of his lifetime. That make sense? Yeah. Okay. All right. Anybody else? Okay. Now, I think this is going to help you understand how they saw the world. So first thing that we're going to assume, because that's kind of the way it's portrayed in various passages in the Old Testament, is that the ancient mind thought that the world was flat rather than a globe. And since they thought it was a, a flat surface, the question comes up, what holds the sky in place? What keeps the stars, the sun, and the moon in place? And um, what is it that's holding this flat surface that we're living on in place? So. Here's this, um, this drawing, and you'll find this in a lot of different books, um, similar types of drawings. So here is the earth that we live on here. The immediate sky above 
is considered to be the firmament where the stars and the moon and the sun are. However, it was believed that there was some type of water that was above this firmament, but it was held in place. And as it was held in place, uh, it helped hang the stars, the sun and the moon in place. So when we think about a ceiling holding something up, so we have light fixtures, let's say, I have one above me right now, that that ceiling is holding that light in place. And it was the common assumption, something's holding the stars and the sun and moon in place. There must be some solid uh, structure in place that's holding them there. The other thing then is what is it that's holding this earth in place? So you'll come across some passages that seem to describe as if there's columns, as in pillars, that's holding up this flat surface in place. But in the middle of it is this idea of Sheol. Sheol is the place of the dead. So when a person dies, they go to Sheol. Now, this is not the same thing as hell. It's the idea of, it's just simply the grave. It's the place of the dead. And that's where we get this idea uh, from dust you are and to dust you will return and, and all that type of thing. Um, so then surrounding the flat earth is water or the oceans. And below the oceans is the abyss. And whatever that is, some type of cavernous uh, thing that never ends or whatever. So this is a good drawing and you'll see similarities of this in various places that is beginning to help us understand how this, this is why I say their mythology, that's not really how the world works, but they didn't know that. They didn't know the world was a globe. Uh, they didn't understand that uh, the earth, you know, went around the, the sun, um, you know, in a year's time, that type of thing. So they began to interpret their world through this lens. And it's the, you got to give them a, cut them a break. I mean, that's the world that they knew. That's how they, they envisioned it. And it's not really until much later, Galileo, Copernicus, and all those other type of individuals that began to put in place an understanding of how the universe is structured and what our place is in it. So let me stop there and see if I can answer some questions. Does this picture kind of help you understand their framework, how they, they, they looked at the world? So later in Genesis 6, when the flood uh, comes, it was believed that these floodgates were opened by God, and that's where all the water came from that brought uh, the destruction on on the face of the earth. But uh, correct. Correct. Yep. Were you able to hear Esty there? Mm -hmm. no. no. So she was saying that they believed that uh, the abyss was below the columns of the earth and, um, and that water surrounded the columns of the earth. What else did you say? And then the above. 
around. Yeah, and waters all around. Mm -hmm. So you see that here in verse six, don't you? Um, and God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate the water from the water. So what that is probably talking about is the water above the water. Here's the water, the ocean, but then there was a belief that there was water above and, and, and the floodgates allowed that water to flood the earth because God opened it up. Other questions or comments there? So we give them a break. They did the best that they could with the information that they had. They didn't live in the 21st century. They didn't understand things through telescopes and research and all that type of thing. But I bet a hundred years from now, were we able to live that long, the theories of how the universe works will change and we're doing the best we can with the information that we have. Um, but I bet it's not 100% correct uh, that there will be other theories that will be brought up and those theories will be tested. And some of them will go, oh, th this is how we thought this worked, but now we understand more. So that's, that's what we're doing here too with the ancient mind. Other questions, comments? Now, uh, hopefully that helps you to understand that, that Genesis is, is an ancient viewpoint and you have to understand that it's not addressing scientific questions, okay? So what are their convictions? Well, I think what you take away from Genesis 1 and 2 is these critical convictions are simply this. Israel's God is the great and mighty God. He creates the cosmos by himself. He doesn't do it through debate or battle. He then shows human beings are the crowning achievement of, um, of the created order. Uh, and so in many ways, Genesis chapter one is this ancient statement of faith that the God of Israel alone is worthy of worship and, um, and so here's this captive people uh, that worship a God that is responsible for taming the chaos in, in the created order. And it's to give them hope. It's to give them help to understand that, um, you know, this God is still on their side and, and can and bring deliverance and, to them and bring them back into the land and help them thrive. So a, a couple of things I think that are important to, to note here. Genesis 1 is not written to, written to answer our curiosity about how the universe came to be. It's not written, written to show us, the, uh, uh, the Israelites ha had a basic grasp of the Big Bang, the expanding universe, and Einstein's theory of relativity. It's not to tell us that the Israelites had that all figured out back then. Um, so Genesis 1 is describing the world and the cosmos in ancient terms through an ancient worldview. If, if we grant that, a lot of the tensions that we run into in the discussion of Genesis 1 uh, with others that want to take it more literally than uh, this idea of how the, how the ancients saw it, 
a lot of that just goes away because we go, I don't need to insist upon that upon the text because they probably didn't even understand a lot of the stuff other than this is how the legend was done in the Babylonian account and the correction by the Israelites of that account. That makes sense? Let it ruminate and just kind of think on it a little bit. And, you know, you don't have to agree. You don't have to disagree. But it's it's something that's there. It's out there uh, to talk about in, in regard to Genesis 1 and 2. So uh, there's a new book out uh, by Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, he's an astrophysicist. It's a book called Cosmic Queries uh, in your in your handout there, uh, I gave to you kind of a picture of what the book looks like there. In it, he addresses things from a scientific point of view in regard to how old the universe is, where do the elements come from, when do atoms become players in the drama of the universe, uh, how did the universe transform from an expanding collection of atoms into the galaxies of stars and planets, what preceded the Big Bang? What's the origin of life? So on and so forth. So if you want to see the current scholarship and what they're wrestling with in regard to these big life questions, then a resource like this will help you a little bit. Um, so what I want to do, this is another chart that I gave to you uh, when we were in Genesis 1 in our series, uh, Far From the Shallow. And so I'm not gonna do that again because I do wanna show you this video clip, which is only a few minutes long um, before we close our Bible study tonight. So just look this over. You'll see that there is a difference between the Genesis one account of creation and the Genesis two account of creation. And so um, I think uh, Dr. Pete Enns does a great job in and showing that to us. So let's uh, watch this video for a few months, then we'll take a couple of minutes for uh, questions or comments, and then our time tonight will be done, okay? We can't hear it. We can't hear it. No? No. Uh -uh. Okay. All right. Um, it's coming through my computer, but not coming through yours. Uh, okay. Uh, let me see Are here. Are you recording? Maybe. No, uh, for whatever reason. Uh, you might not be able to watch this. So, um, Tell you what, uh, I don't know what to do other than to say you can uh, look up this particular video clip um, on YouTube. And uh, sorry about, I still can't figure out how Zoom works with videos. Um, so, uh, uh, just two creation stories. Uh, uh, Dr. Peter Enns. E-N-N-S. Okay. 
I'm sorry about that. I have to look it up and see how, how to correct it. I'm still having trouble with that. So we'll finish off tonight with this, uh, this slide here. Some possible approaches to reading both accounts. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2 have been put together for a reason, even though there's differences there. And one approach is to think of the two different accounts as kind of like balancing each other out a little bit. So whereas the first account in Genesis 1 pictures God as kind of transcendent, speaking creation into being by his word, uh, the second account portrays God as imminent, forming the human from the dust of the ground like a potter that's working with clay and then converses with the human beings. Another approach might be to think about Genesis 2 as an expansion of the, the day of creation when God makes human beings. In other words, the ancient editor structures the entire book uh, with this phrase. I, uh, I mentioned this a couple of times on Sunday morning. Uh, these are the descendants of, it's a Hebrew word, toledot. Um, and you're going to notice that that's the way uh, Genesis uh, chapter 2, verse 4 begins. So it's almost as if Genesis 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, uh, verse 3 is kind of like a prelude. And then the 10 sections that begin in Genesis, these are the descendants of, begins with the second account of creation. Verse 4 of chapter 2 says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were made. So in other words, maybe what um, what the second creation story is doing is acting like the first holodote, the first main section that organizes the book of Genesis. And um, so what follows is kind of a compressed account of human history, uh, which developed out of the created order. And so what you find here is that uh, Genesis goes on and doesn't give us all the details about everything, but just what applies to moving the story ahead for the nation of Israel. So here's what I'm going to do. Um, I just thought of this now. So that video clip uh, I have as a separate file on my computer. When I close things down here, uh, I'll email that to you so you can uh, look at it, okay? It's not very long. It might take me a few minutes for it to upload before it's actually in your email box, but um, take a look at it and, um, you know, think about it, ruminate on it a little bit. And, um, you know, this is all, this is all common courtesy discussions because none, none of us have it figured out. Even the scholars have debated about these two creation stories for centuries. And, um, you know, we're not going to be the final say of it. But, you know, I think it helps us to understand what Genesis is doing. And it certainly helps us not to be intimidated by what science discovers. Because in the first place, Genesis 1 is not a scientific account. That's probably the bottom line that's no. most important. You have some thoughts or questions before we end our Bible study tonight? Thanks. Very interesting, Larry. Good. Yeah, it, uh, it's fascinating. It really is fascinating. And um, Peter ends, um, if you really want to do some deep dives, um, 
he has written a couple of books. Uh, there's a podcast if you like to listen to podcasts called The Bible for Normal People, and he'll touch upon uh, things like creation and Genesis and so forth. So, um, you know, you can kind of search out some of those um, resources if you want to. So, okay, I'll send you that video clip. Hopefully, it'll get into your email box here shortly and you can take a look at it. Okay. Any closing thoughts before we say goodnight? Um, Bible for Normal People is a podcast that uh, they usually put out every Monday. And uh, I listen to it just about every week. That's one podcast. Yep. Well, that's assuming they listen to podcasts. But, you know, it's a good way to, if you're in your car or something, and if you have an iPhone and you have if you uh, have an app that downloads podcasts, uh, I encourage you uh, to subscribe, no charge to it at all, uh, for the Bible for normal people. They talk about a lot of interesting things. So, all right. Well, we'll call it a night and we actually get to see each other this coming Sunday. So that's a, a great yeah. thing. So looking forward to it. And uh, yeah. And uh, we'll see you then. And I uh, hope you have a good night. Thanks, Larry. You too. Bye. 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 Take care.